stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders, past and present, as well as recognise that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. Hey, I'm Danny Stewart and you're listening to All the Best on FBI 94.5. You've probably heard of the giant squid, but what about the giant cuttlefish? In our first story this week, Mel follows Dave and Indigo on their journey to see the giant cuttlefish of Wyala. Dan and Indigo are at the start of a road trip. They're driving from Melbourne to Adelaide and heading west across the Nullarbor. It's July 2022, and the sepia apama, or giant cuttlefish, are breeding in the shallow coastal waters near Wyala, South Australia. Cuttlefish are cephalopods, which means head feet, and they're close relatives of the octopus and squid. Growing up in Adelaide, I'd never heard of it. thought it was this relatively obscure thing, but it turns out that it's quite well known. I think it was a Blue Planet episode with David Attenborough. And we were watching it because we're kind of into cephalopods anyway. And then he goes, off the coast of South Australia in Wyala. And we were like, what? That's close by. We should go there. The scientists have kept it under wraps for too long. And I think that some of the documentaries, like my teacher octopus and... Is that one? My octopus teacher. My octopus teacher. And an octopus in my room (laughs) have um, created a resurgence of cephalopod mania. It's true. maybe sparked interest. Cephalopods are quite trendy at the moment. It's a good time to be into cephalopods. And we have them right at our doorstep. Driving from Adelaide, we see the smokestacks before we see Wyala. There are signs on the side of the road. Take a tour of the steelworks. And then the next sign... Take a dive with the cuttlefish. Yeah, so we are sitting right on the water edge. It's glassy calm. We are rugged up because it's freezing. <laughs> it's early in the morning and, yeah, we're just watching a couple of members of the public, a couple of divers go in, snorkelers, to go have a look at the, the giant cuttlefish who you can hear in the background. My name is Ellie Schultz and we are at Stony Point near Wyala on the Air Peninsula. Ellie grew up in Port Lincoln. She studied marine science. And she's a volunteer at EMS, experiencing marine sanctuaries. During the cuttlefish breeding season, every year from around May to July, she helps out as a snorkel guide. No, so this this area here is the Upper Spencer Gulf Marine Park. 
cuttlefish can't be fished through this breeding area, which is good and is what you want for such a unique place and the only place in the whole world that cuttlefish come up to breed, so it's important to protect it. According to the information display at Stony Point, in the late 90s, quote, 38 boats caught 270 tonnes of giant cuttlefish in three weeks, nearly wiping out the species. I don't think they expect to see the sheer numbers of cuttlefish that we do in such a small area. They come out thinking they have to go really far out to sea, but we have to be so careful when we're entering the water because there could be cuttlefish, you know, in waist deep water. It looks like a really big squid. They have huge mantles, so huge bodies, um, and they can look... You can look see your torso. Yeah. Big alien head. It's almost like they're in two halves. Like, yeah, the head looks kind of like an elephant, but with, like, extra trunks. bodies, um, and they can look bigger. So some of the males, like, they can up, be up to, like, I think, 40 centimetres long. And I think they're, they yeah, maybe like a foot spread long. out their mantle and their, their tentacles and their arms as well, um, and they look bigger than what they actually are. For me, that's like, yes, I love this natural world and seeing the cuttlefish, but I just love taking people out and getting them, yeah, experiencing our natural environment and, and the cuttlefish. I think that's what I take home from it. That's why I love it, why I volunteer. I'm, I'm hoping for awe. Mm. Just like a sense of like, wow, nature's incredible. Isn't the world fantastic? That's what I really wanted, like, today. I want to, like, stare at... Cephalopod and its W-shaped pupils. Yeah. I want, I want to stare one of these giant cuttlefish down and be like, hey. You know, it's not like you're just hanging out with a fish or whatever. It's, like, our last mutual ancestor was, like, a worm. <laughs> and they've evolved eyes and hearts and brains completely independently of every other animal who has those things. Um, but then there's still this, like, two different versions of evolved intelligence mutually recognising each other. It's quite cool. <laughs> Do you want to be recognised? Yeah, I think it's self-affirming, my existence. And this, and this other cephalopod in the sea. I'm very open to to what it might be. I don't want to project too much onto them, which I think I've done enough already. Um, it's late in the afternoon when we turn up to Stony Point for the guided snorkel. No, and look, they're just in here. What? They're just there? They're just Bit there. They're just there. Yeah. After we've signed in, it's time to suit up. It's much it's much more comfortable now that it's on though. Getting it on was the worst bit. Trying to pull on a wet suit. Yeah, I feel like if you go into the water, it's 
hood on. And you've got your hood and booties and gloves and everything, so there's not a lot of skin showing. Um, yeah, we try and keep everyone nice and warm and toasty. Um, well, I'm essentially covered from head to toe in, like, thick wetsuit material. I've got little booties on that are tucked into the bottom of my wetsuit. And it's all, like, every opening is sealed all the way up to a hood with only eyebrows to mouth exposed. And <laughs> it's, all, it's all a bit tight and clammy at this stage. Like Waiting you're ready in to the submerge. Sun. Like you're yeah. a sea creature ready to return to your habitat. Been out of the water for too long. Yeah, it's like, you know those myths about selkies? Like the people... The... Oh, let's put our masks on. Mask for sealing your face under your head. Just do a little sniff in. And if you can sniff in, it's not sealing. And then we head down to the rocky shore for a final briefing. We're going to go down along these big flat stones. Now it looks good and easy until you get just in the water when the big flat stones end. Put your fin on and just pull it on. And then turn around and do the other side. Okay. But if a wave knocks you over, you won't be the first to have stumbled into this. Let me just tell you a bit about the cuttlefish, what we're going to see. So, it's mating time. You've got a male, which are usually bigger, and a smaller female. The bigger male puts on lots of displays, fancy colours waving through him, purples, blues, greens. I don't know how they do that, but they change all their colours. Some little males are tricky, they're really clever. Because the big males will beat them up, they sometimes, because the, the male has got one more tentacle more than the female, for the obvious reason, right? And what the young boy does, he hides that and pretends he's a pretty female, and that way he can get close to the female. I've got and apparently the lady cuttlefish like mate with lots of different men and then hold on to the sperm packets and select the one that they like the most. And apparently quite often the one that they like the most is the sneaky cross-dressing cuttlefish more than the big chest-thumping bull cuttlefish. <laughs> Which is maybe why they've evolved to be smart because like the women are... Um, it's like selecting for the ones who have come up with a, a scheme rather than the ones that have just brutishly pushed their way to the top. <laughs> so when you see them together face to face, that's the mating thing. The female I'm, wants I'm slightly concerned that the illusion of these, you know, very graceful, smart creatures in the Southern Ocean will be somewhat ruined by seeing them in their mating rituals. I feel like animal mating rituals are quite often really brutal and horrible and I'm concerned that I'm going to see something and be like, oh my god! I thought you had emotional intelligence. <laughs> yeah, exactly, but you're brutal, you're brutal. will be a bit grabby. Yeah, I'm worried that they're going to be a bit grabby. <laughs> but once the male has... Fertilise an egg, he's only got months to live. Wow. 
limbs falling off. They kind of slowly decay. I think it's the end of their biological clock. And this is the last thing that they're compelled to do, is to come to this little bay in Wyala. How do they do that? I have no idea. But they come back and find it. Get the on. <laughs> and, and decompose. Not a good. I don't want to be a. They don't, they're called Stephanie. Right. Okay. Shall so we go? We Me and Dan got out of the water and we're just walking up her Oh my god! And then you saw this? It was so cool. Like right at the beginning, we went up and there was a real big boy that was huge. I reckon he was like this big. He was like so big, hey? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And all of the communicating with the, the arms. And we saw as well like two big boys next to each other spreading out their tentacles and getting real big. Like trying to like stare each other down. Up staunch each other. That was very cool. I feel like it would be quite poignant to look into the eyes of a cuttlefish and, be, and feel like you're being recognised. It would feel quite, like, existential. I think people are always amazed to hear that they only live for about 12 to 18 months. That's my favourite fact. I think it really drills in the importance of protection of the species when we say that every single adult that you're going to see out here today or any day they come out will all be dead by, you know, end of August. So all these adults are not feeding whilst they're here. They're out here for one reason, and that's the green. And it seems to be. Something tells them to come here, to this little bay in Wyala, at this time of year, every year. And they, the females will lay the eggs, and it's up to those eggs to hatch and survive and grow for that next generation. Otherwise, this whole subspecies of the giant cuttlefish are completely wiped out. The real thing about them is that they become so smart and resourceful um, within two or so years and then they die. And they're born, by the time that they're born, their parents have decayed and they're alone. And they get born in these huge clutches and only a small amount survive and go on for the next two years. But everything that they learn and adapt to, they do in that space of time. And that intelligence and that learning capacity seems to be just innate in them or a part of their quick development. The real question is like, what is cephalopod consciousness? Like, are they self-aware? Which we also read a book about cephalopod intelligence that talks about the cuttlefish in Wyala. And the guy who wrote the book talks about how he had this sense of like mutual recognition when swimming with the cuttlefish as well, that they would kind of look at him and he'd look at them and there was just this kind of sense of we are here coexisting 
and recognising each other. That story was produced by Mel Bakewell and was originally broadcast on Radio Adelaide's Background Sound. You're listening to All the Best on FBI 94.5. I'm Danny Stewart. All the Best is a great place to learn the art of audio storytelling. Never made a story before? No problem. No experience is required. If you'd like to make a story for the show, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com. In our next story, Cody investigates a mysterious condition affecting rainbow lorikeets and the team of citizen scientists, vets and academics working together to figure out what's causing it. I think the first thing I noticed is the change of their voice. So the poor things are there trying to vocalise and um, they just have this really distinctive um, voice change Mm. where they're trying to make that extremely loud lorikeet screech that you hear when they're healthy, but they can't. So that was pretty confronting to to hear that because they sound quite distressed. Some of them completely lose their voice or even to a whisper. Lorikeet paralysis syndrome is is characterized by what we call a flaccid paralysis or uh, a weakness, which is pretty much an, an ascending paralysis that includes the legs and the wings, and um, in particular, a change of voice, an inability to use their tongue, inability to swallow, and inability to blink. David Phelan is a professor of veterinary science at the University of Sydney. He's describing a mysterious condition that is paralysing lorikeets and leaving them unable to fly. It's called lorikeet paralysis syndrome. I would say, imagine that you're walking down the street and you ate something, then all of a sudden things started to get tingly and or you're walking through the woods and you fall over and you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know if somebody's going to find you. You don't know if you're going to get better. You don't know if you're going to die. And you imagine the anxiety and the fear that you would be going through. And each one of these rainbow lorikeets is experiencing that same thing. They're going through a really terrible time. And then they get picked up by somebody and their only knowledge of of people is that They might be predators that are going to eat them or kill them or or whatever. There have been reports of this sudden paralysis affecting lorikeets as early as the 1970s. No one knew what could be causing it. But like any mystery, there were some clues. For one, it's a seasonal condition, occurring between October and June, only in a single region of southeastern Queensland and northern New South Wales, and only affecting lorikeets. Claude Lacasse, a wildlife veterinarian at the RSPCA Queensland, had been running tests but wasn't able to uncover the culprit behind the paralysis. Then, Claude teamed up with David alongside Dr Carrie Rose, a veterinary pathologist at the Taronga Conservation Society. They began their investigation at Claude's facility in Queensland, examining the lorikeets that were being brought in with paralysis. And that starts with a 
complete physical examination. And then that goes to doing a workup where we collect blood and look at biochemical changes in the blood that might suggest that they had um, damage to a specific organ system, muscles, um, kidney, or liver. And we also submitted tissues to the Environmental Protection Agency who, who ran a, a series of tests, actually, where they looked for several hundred potential uh, toxins that could be causing um, these kinds of signs. After all this testing, they still hadn't identified the cause. And so we basically ruled out a lot of different things. And so that left us with uh, pretty much the suspicion that this was caused by an ingestion of a toxic plant. And the other um, reason that we thought that this was caused by the ingestion of a toxic plant is that it's confined to a certain region, which is um, possibly a region that these toxic plants might grow in. So our assumption was that it was an introduced plant, a plant that probably had been introduced by humans to, to Australia that the lorikeets hadn't um, adapted to feeding on over their history. But exactly which plant is responsible remains a mystery. Until the culprit is identified, lorikeet paralysis syndrome will continue to claim victims. Bronte Potts, a Queensland-based veterinary nurse, has seen the devastating effects this condition can have on lorikeets firsthand. There's no one working in a wildlife hospital that's not there because, you know, they want to make a difference and want to want to save animals and, and see them back out in the wild. Seeing, you know, the sheer volume that we see of lorikeets, um, which, which for, you know, the busy wildlife hospital that I've had experience in is, you know, in the thousands each year. They don't all make it and, and that's really hard. Um, and, and seeing them sort of, you put in everything and you see them struggle and um, when they make it, it feels amazing and you feel like you've made such a difference and, you know, you get to see them go to carers and the carers are so passionate and that, you know, they will let us know when they've released them and things like that. Um, obviously not each individual, but they'll release a flock, they'll release, release them all together and, you know, that that's amazing. But certainly the seeing them, you know, struggle um, and, and often not make it after, even after putting, giving everything you've got is, is really tough. So it's something that, yeah, I think a lot of people struggle with. The resources of wildlife carers and researchers are stretched thin, to say the least. They have little funding support at any level of government and only so much time to give to animals in trouble. To help narrow down the list of suspects, they utilised citizen science. Sure, well, the bottom line is, is that if you have graduate students or, or yourself that want to go out and find out what lorikeets are feeding on, that takes an enormous amount of, of effort to do. And it's very, very difficult to get a, a large data set by just one person going out and, and doing that. So um, more and more uh, people are using citizen science to study um, what's happening in nature. And we thought that we could probably recruit large numbers of, of people and gather huge amounts of data 
uh, with volunteers that we could never get by doing it ourselves because there just wasn't time and, uh, to, and financial uh, reserves to do that. The iNaturalist app allows everyday people to identify and record observations of plant and animal life. It's hoped that the use of the app will help reveal which plant is responsible. So we um, set up this um, program through iNaturalist where people could go out and take a picture of a plant that an animal was feeding on. We have a photo of the lorikeet. We can see the um, age of the lorikeet. We can, see, we can see the location of where the photo was taken. Holly Bowden, a student at Sydney University, is one of several people involved in processing photos and data gathered through iNaturalist. Then we have the RSPCA data, which shows us where uh, lorikeets with lorikeet paralysis syndrome were found. Let's say they were also found in suburb A, B and C. We can start to see a correlation between the toxic bush, theoretical bush, and the lorikeet being sick. And we can start to say maybe the toxic bush is the cause or one of the causes behind this paralysis. Wildlife conservation is a catastrophically underfunded field. So uh, citizen science platforms like iNaturalist are amazingly beneficial at gathering data. It's just an amazing resource. And um, I think it's really valuable for people to be empowered to uh, have their own impact on the community around them. The researchers have managed to rule out many suspects, but they can't solve this mystery on their own. Citizen science contributions remain the best chance of identifying the culprit plant. Once they do, they'll be able to prevent, or maybe even cure, lorikeet paralysis syndrome. And I encourage anybody that might have an interest in this to, to, to join the, the crew that's investigating it, because I think when we finally do find the answer as to what's causing this, um, that we can prevent it, help to prevent it, and we may be able to come up with uh, advanced treatment options that will allow these birds that have it to recover more quickly. You shouldn't be able to be able to go up to a lorikeet, pick it up, and take it somewhere. Like, it's a wild bird, it should fly away. Because like I said, it's something I'm really passionate about, and I think because lorikeets aren't one of those rare things that you never see um, people kind of are just like, oh, you know, it's just a lorikeet, but they forget their little individuals with their little individual personalities and, you know, they hang out in groups and they have their relationships and things like that um, with each other. So uh, I was stoked to hear that there are people out there um, who, who want to get the word out and make a difference. That story was produced by Cody Junta. Ryan Pemberton was the supervising producer. You can find links to more information about the Lorikeet Paralysis Syndrome Project in our show notes. That story was produced by Cody Junta 
Ryan Pemberton was the supervising producer. You can find links to more info about the Lorikeet Paralysis Syndrome Project in our show notes. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to Elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal Land in association with Sin and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Broomerong lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun and Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Timothy Nguyen, Lydia Yosefova is our community coordinator and Madura Prakash is our trainee. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening. <laughs>